0: I woke up this morning, I was stuck to my bed because of the mucus dripping out of my head. My little brother said, that's a really cool trick. I said, no, it's not. It means I'm sick. Mama came in, she said, why do you look so glum? I said, because I've got aliens in my lungs. There's an alien in my lungs. That's right. <laughs> you could have aliens in your lungs, because after all, that's why you get sick, right? <laughs> there's just there's just little aliens floating through the air, and at any moment you could breathe them in. If you're unlucky enough to do so and get deathly ill, then <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it, right? I mean, uh, so I guess just live in fear. I guess just be scared. After all, that is the goal. Anyway, <laughs> already on a tangent. Uh, welcome back to Everything Allegedly. My name is Sean, and thank you so much for joining me. And everything that you hear on this show is 100% true, allegedly. And um, <laughs> But that's not even true. I wouldn't even say that. I think most of it's true, but uh <laughs> not all of it. I- I'm sure I say a lot of things. That are untrue. After all, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not Kareem Jean-Pierre, right? I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not Donald Trump. <laughs> the, the vaccine is great. It saved a hundred million people. Oh my gosh. I'm not Kevin McCarthy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Y- y- do you notice, do you notice how many people just are like in charge these days who can never admit they do anything wrong. It is fully insane. And uh, it's not good. It's definitely not good. Uh, <laughs> why are there so many of these horrible, vain, self-interested, and uh, <laughs> and very much um, always wrong, but uh, never admitting it? Why are there so many of them in charge? I don't know. Lizards, I guess. Just just and speaking of lizards cuz you know I love lizards and if you listen on Spotify you know that I love the reptilian the lizard people thing because every one of the show uh the show images is <laughs> a lizard or a reptile or something and I'm sure if you're, if you're seeing that, if you're listening on Spotify, you're like, what in the hell is up with this guy and lizards? Well, there you go. It's the reptilian stuff, and I think it's just hilarious. Maybe someday I will do an episode on reptilians and uh, that that whole thing because I just love it. That's the only way I can explain it. That's the only way I can explain the awful people who are in charge these days. They're lizards. That's gotta be it, right? <laughs> That's gotta be it. Uh, we passed a. Um, speaking of lizards, we have passed a milestone. I also love the number thirty three, and we're we're hitting one. It's like uh, it's like astrology. You know when you hear like Mercury is in retrograde, or you know there's there's a it, we're in a full moon right now, so people are acting weird. Well, right now, just a couple of days ago, the national debt past 33 trillion so we're in the season of 33 it's kind of like a you know a lizard banking uh, season rather than astrology but yeah we just passed 33 trillion dollars in debt what could go wrong basically that means that like 33 percent of our yearly spending is going to go to service that debt so hey (laughs) What could possibly go wrong What could possibly go wrong Uh, I guess we're going to find out (laughs) One thing that's not going to go wrong though, I promise you one thing that's Not going to go wrong is you're not going to catch a virus You're not going to catch A little alien Going into your lungs And making you sick I mean you might get sick but that's not going to be the way that it happens. And so um, this is the part two. This is part two of the virus uh, episode that was now four weeks ago because the last episode was the one-year anniversary episode, which, by the way, thank you so much for everybody who listened. And um, I got some good feedback on, on that episode. I think some of you really enjoyed it. and um, And hopefully... I think what that episode did was it reminded uh, some of you who listened uh, about some of the the past episodes and so uh very very uh, well received episode and also just a very good couple of weeks of uh, downloads there so thank you guys very much uh, you know I always appreciate that anyway you're not gonna get a virus and because uh, they're probably not real they don't they don't work the way that um, that we are told. So, uh, let's recap a little bit about what we talked about that first episode. And by the way, if you didn't listen to that first episode about viruses, go back two episodes and listen to it because today is kind of a continuation, but I do just want to recap real quick and, um, just say that, you know, some people don't believe in viruses. In fact, there's a lot and, um, and, and it's growing every day because the stories just kind of don't check out. We talked about the origin of germ theory versus terrain theory and how there was a guy, um, uh, Louis Pasteur, who you probably know through you know things like pasteurization and stuff like that. He was the germ theory guy. And then uh, Beauchamp was the terrain theory guy. And uh, in the end, according to our... Uh, <laughs> our medical system. We know who won that battle, obviously Pastor, because all we've heard about lately is viruses. And uh, we also talked about Cox postulate or Koch's postulate. And um, those were the four postulates for how you would prove that a, uh, that a, uh, uh, a a pathogen is infectious or that a pathogen causes disease. And, um, real quickly, I'll just go over those. Number one is that you have to find pathogens in sick, but not healthy people or subjects, animals, whatever. And, um, So, by the way, (laughs) asymptomatic carriers, kind of, uh, we already got that one wrong. And (laughs) so anyway, Cox postulate number two, the pathogen must be isolated. We're going to talk a lot about that one today. Uh, Number three is that the pathogen must cause disease when it is introduced into a healthy subject. We talked a lot about that one last time. And uh, number four, which is... Basically, now that you have a, uh, a test subject that you've made sick, you need to extract that from the test subject, isolate it, and then show it to be exactly the same as the pathogen that you started with. And, um, as uh, as we've talked about in the last episode, as we will discuss in this episode, basically every one of those postulates has been thrown out the window to uh, prove this fake germ theory, and especially in the case of viruses. You know it's, what? I should say that when I talk about uh, germ theory, it's not just viruses. It does include bacteria, and that's not that bacteria doesn't exist because it's easy to see. We know it's there. It's always at the site of infections. But some people theorize much in the way that uh, they they theorize with with um, uh, viruses not not doing what they're claimed to do. Some people think that that's the case with bacteria as well that the bacteria although we find it present at the site of infections it's not actually what made you sick but it's actually doing the cleanup job and so you can think about it as firefighters on the scene of a fire you know most of the time at a fire you're going to find firefighters but we don't assume that the firefighters caused the fire So that's kind of uh, one way you can look at bacteria as well as viruses when we're talking about this germ theory versus terrain theory. Unfortunately, that same thing doesn't hold up with viruses because in the case of the firefighters, we never even see them. (laughs) They're not around. They're nowhere to be found because, uh, like we talked about last time, you can't see them. (laughs) You can't barely prove they're there. So. Anyway, last time we talked about uh, the Rosenau experiments and how, um, you know, that basically flies in the face of of Koch's postulate number three, because when you introduce this uh, diseased person to healthy people— uh, in those experiments, they couldn't make anybody sick. They have replicated those experiments many, many times, and it's always the same result. There is uh, never a statistically significant amount of people who get sick in these studies to show that there is pathogen, uh, pathogenic spread um, from one person to another. So, you know, as far as studies go, that doesn't exist. It only exists in our imaginations because of situations like the one that I talked about in the last episode, which, you know, I was flying home from Dubai, sitting next to this very <clears throat> really, really sick girl. And I thought, oh no, here we go. We're gonna get sick because this uh this sickly person is breathing all over us. And we got we got home and we did get sick. And so that's one of those experiments. Uh, that really kind of reinforces your idea about pathogenic spread, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, I breathed in any of those, uh, those little aliens into my lungs. It could just mean that uh, me, my wife, and that girl on the plane were exposed to something uh, in an area that we both just came from, and that's how we got sick. Some kind of toxin or something like that. It's not out of the question. And uh, and there are a lot of questions. Uh, we talked a lot about the uh, cytopathic cell effect. That is the current way that they you know prove that viruses exist. They they don't um, they don't take a little bit out of a sick person and sprinkle it on a well person and make them sick. So what they have to do is they have to perform this parlor trick where they take uh, cell cultures of monkey kidney cells and bovine fetal serum and antibiotics and nutrients and starvation and heat and cold and blah, blah, blah. And they put it through this crazy set of seemingly random uh, cycles of starvation and feeding and antibiotics and everything and, and, and make this. And once you know, the cells get sick and then they go, look, there was a virus in that culture, uh, we talked about how there was uh, a guy, oh, what is his name? Because I don't have the notes from last week's show. Uh, Stefan Lonka, he's the guy who was able to show that, pa- that cytopathic effect in cell cultures that had no, uh, no viral sample added to them, which basically shows that the cytopathic effect can be achieved without viruses at all. And then I shared my experience with laboratory testing, how that works, what I saw, and sort of the uh, the experience I had and the issues that I ran into trying to get my products tested against certain vaccines. Now, there is something I didn't mention in that episode, which I, I thought was interesting. So uh, when I was trying to get my products tested to prove that they kill SARS-CoV-2, you know, which which obviously was <laughs> very popular over the last couple of years. So if I could advertise and say, hey, my product kills SARS-CoV-2, you know, that's going to be a, a good thing to say because um, that's what everyone was concerned about. So that was my goal. But I come to find out that when these companies do these tests, and I was working with a— um, worldwide laboratory that does government contracting. This is not some fly by night laboratory. This is a uh, massive, uh, well-known laboratory that I will not name here. But anyway, when I was going to get my product tested, uh, they don't actually send a virus into my product to uh, measure the results. No, uh, the reason they don't do that is because, like we talked about last time, and we're going to talk about this time, there's no way to get a pure virus sample. It does not exist. And so they play this little trick, and they say, um, yeah, well, what we're going to do is we're going we're to use a bacteriophage, and that is going to stand in for a virus in the experiment. And I go, okay, well, um, great. You know, we'll use this bacteriophage, which is essentially like they say it's like viruses in the bacteria world, whatever. And so they don't hurt humans. That's that's the point. And that's why they use them for these tests or so they say. They say that I know why I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they don't have actual purified virus samples, but what they say is that they use it because it's safe and bacteriophage do not affect humans. And so it's um, it's a it's a safer analog to work with whatever. But um, here's where the issue comes in. The issue comes in where if you're not testing the exact same thing, how can I make the claim that my product is actually doing what I'm saying. If I want to tell my customers that my product kills SARS-CoV-2 to put their um, their concerns at rest, well, I'm not actually able to do that because they don't put SARS-CoV-2 through the equipment they're testing. They use an uh, an analog, a stand-in, which they say is equivalent to the virus that you're looking to test against. Now, how can they prove that? I don't know. But I will tell you that a lot of people in the industry will use that and just tell you that their product was tested against a whole host of viruses. So just know that. There's almost no laboratories that are doing uh, testing on uh, germicidal uh, products or um, pesticide products that are are said to kill viruses and bacteria. Well, bacteria, yes, but viruses, no. So, most of them are using this bacteriophage method, and so they're not really doing what they're saying they're doing. So, let's talk about some more of the inconsistencies with this germ theory, specifically as it relates to viruses. And um, I've already mentioned it a couple of times. And that big one is there is no isolation, there's no purification. And so when I was trying to get my product tested and I was so confused because I didn't know all this stuff at that time. And I'm going, well, can't you just sprinkle a little bit of SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, test my machine with that? Because I'd rather say that. I don't want to say it was tested against a, uh, (laughs) you know, a bacteriophage analog because that's not the same thing. I'm worried about my customers getting SARS-CoV-2. I don't think they give a damn about something that doesn't make them sick anyway. And so you can imagine my confusion. I was very confused. But I didn't know that there is no such thing in the world of viruses as isolation and purification. Now, that is a big problem, right? Because Koch's postulate number two is that a pathogen must be isolated. And then Koch's postulate number four is that... We uh, need to take that isolated pathogen, put it into a well subject, make that subject sick, and then re-isolate it to compare it to the first one. So as you can see, if you can't isolate these viruses, well, there's no chance at all that you're going to fulfill any of these postulates. It's it's totally uh, preposterous to think that you could. So... so um, uh, s- So what are we doing? (laughs) Because the answer is no, we absolutely do not isolate viruses. It has never been done. No matter what you've heard or read, there's a bunch of stories out there about how they've isolated SARS-CoV-2. Let me tell you, (laughs) they didn't. Um, So we're not doing it. And and you know, this isn't my words. You actually can just go look this stuff up. It's a little hard to find because as we've discussed uh, bunch of times here on this podcast, information or, uh, information that you're not supposed to see. It's, it's getting hidden pretty well, but yes, this is not my words. The scientific community admits that they don't do isolation in the way that you and I would co- would consider something to be isolated. You know, when you, when you say isolation or when I say isolation, what would you assume? I hope you would assume that you mean taking the virus the particles of virus and having a sample that is nothing but that virus. That's what isolation and purification would sound like to me, but that's not what it is to the scientific community, at least not where virology is concerned. And again, they will admit this. Now they will say purification. They will say isolation in their studies sometimes. In fact, one of the studies I read to you uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I believe, did say isolation. But the problem is there is no standard for this isolation. There's no agreed-upon standard. There's not even an agreed-upon standard on the size of all these different viruses. So they do not have a standard. So that means they're not fulfilling any sort of uh, uh, purification or isolation to, uh, to any real uh, believable sense. And there's a couple of ways that they do uh, some kind of of isolations. They use uh, filtration. They use um, precipitation. They use um, uh, uh, centrifugation, which is like spinning really fast. And um, I mentioned filtration. One thing I found when researching this episode that I thought was very interesting was uh, when the initial attempts were, were made around the turn of the last century, you know, my favorite time period to to isolate a virus, which by their own admission, they were unsuccessful at doing. But the first attempts to do so were used with something called a uh, Berkefeld filter, <laughs> which if Burke and filter sound familiar, that's where the big Berkey water filter comes from, which I thought was kind of cool. Because big Berkey uh, is basically just the uh, modern iteration of this uh, this filter that was at one time invented to try and filter out pathogens. Anyway, a little tangent. I thought that was cool. Now, if you look into these studies, most of the studies will say that they use the uh, the centrifuge method to uh, to filter or to uh, purify or isolate their samples. Now, the way the um, that most of these studies they're, they're just paying lip service really because again there's there's no standard and so they could purify it any amount or none and it really wouldn't matter at all but again sometimes they do tell you that they do it but they're usually talking about uh, uh centrifugation and the way a centrifuge works is um it spins <laughs> that's really it. it spins really fast and um So imagine, have you ever been on one of those uh, carnival rides where it's like that round drum thing, and you stand against the wall, and it spins really fast, and and I can't go on that stuff anymore, I would puke my brains out, but at one time I could, and so what you do is you stand against the wall, and as it spins really fast, it's kind of tilted back, and then your feet come off the ground, anyway, There you go. That's centripetal force. And so what the the centrifuge is doing with these uh, cells and uh, cellular detritus and presumed vaccines and exomes, which we'll get into, what it's doing is it's spinning these things really fast in um, something much smaller than a carnival ride. We're talking about uh, tiny samples here, and they spin around in this... uh, either a disc or a tube shaped thing. And essentially what you end up with is because of the, the the mass of these particles, they're going to separate into different bands of, of liquid as they spin out. Does that make sense? Uh, The heavier particles would be spun toward the outside where the, the most force is being exerted on them. And the smaller particles, presumably like viruses would be on the bands closer to the center where less force is uh, is being exerted on them. So anyway, I hope that uh, that made sense because that's that's um, how presumably their uh, purification works. But um, anyway, uh, there's other stuff in there, which I which I just alluded to. other stuff which um, they don't really talk about all that much. So all right, you've got these bands. And um you, you can you can separate them out now. You can go, okay, in this very far outer band, we've got like big ass things like entire kidney cells or whatever, you know, mucus particles, whatever. And then toward the inside, we've got we've got the viruses. So it should just be the viruses there, right? Because they're tiny, teeny, teeny, tiny viruses. Uh like, like the intro of the last virus episode. They're very small. Uh, but, uh, but shouldn't that be the only thing in there, right? Because viruses are like the, the tiniest things. Well, no, no, not exactly. There There are other things that that end up there. And it's not just me saying this. Uh, the the, uh, the the scientific community will admit that there are other stuff there, and mostly these other things are um, exomes. <laughs> you know, I go. What are exomes? (laughs) What what are these things I've I've never heard about that uh, basically are just like viruses? Well, for all intents and purposes, they basically are viruses. (laughs) And um, what they are, what they're called, as they're called um, vesicles, that's that's what they say these things are. They're basically fluid-filled spheres and... um, and, and, and what they're presumed to do is be like the communication system for cells. Anyway, it's not all that important, but what you should know is they're not isolating viruses because there is something else there that is basically exactly like a virus. So how do we know which one is a virus? Because here's the funny thing. The funny thing is these exomes, which are presumed to be Exactly like viruses, they're basically the uh, same size, they're basically the same chemical makeup, they're the same everything, these exomes. They can be isolated. Hmm, isn't that strange? So, So exomes can be isolated, but viruses can't. Why do you think that is? Well, because they're able to isolate exomes because exomes aren't pathogenic. But viruses are. So if they isolate them, then they've got to prove it through Koch's postulate. So that's a little suspicious to me. Anyway, follow me on Minds, and I will post some graphs and pictures of these uh, exomes, as well as the next to viruses and, and comparisons and everything. Basically, they're the exact same thing. So the fact that we can isolate one and not the other, and one of them is pathogenic and not the other, very very suspicious. So, you know, if they were basically going to, uh, shoot themselves in the foot by, uh, not being able to fulfill two, three, and four of Koch's postulates, well, I don't think that they would admit to it. So maybe that's why we can isolate exomes and not viruses. I don't know, but, um, they're, uh, there are other excuses. There are other reasons given for why the scientific community, uh, so-called, <laughs> can't isolate viruses. And um, some of those reasons are because the, the, uh, the techniques that are used— Um, would would damage the virus because the virus is too too fragile or because the virus is this uh, delicate thing that needs a host cell to survive so by doing these techniques you're basically um, killing the virus or um, because viruses aren't living by the way they're they are neither living nor dead they are inanimate uh, strands of rna so they're said so anyway i don't know how you could kill one or inactivate it by uh, doing any of these methods of filtration isolation or purification but anyway these are again some of the excuses that are given for why they don't isolate them and it's funny because when you when you think about it it's like wait a second so I'm supposed to believe that, excuse me, I'm supposed to believe that somebody on the other side of a room uh, exhaled their hot, sweaty virus breath, and then here I am just enjoying uh, myself uh, breathing, and I'm I'm, uh, so unlucky as to breathe in one of these virus, these... Uh, rogue alien strands of RNA into my system where it then infects my cells and replicates and make me sick. So that's one scenario. But on the other side, the uh, scientific community is not able to use filtration method uh, to separate these viruses from everything else because it's too delicate or it needs host cells but nobody is arguing that cells are floating through the air. No, they're, they're saying that these viruses, these strands of RNA, sometimes in droplets of spit or whatever they say, are um, floating through the air and making us sick. So it's kind of like quantum superposition, if you know what that is. It's kind of like these things can exist in different states all at one time. And I don't think that's true. I think what it is, is they can't get their story straight. <laughs> and so they tell us that all of these things are true when it doesn't really make any sense at all. These, uh, these viruses, these inanimate killers can just float through the air and take us out at any time. Uh, be- or, or, by the way, don't you remember at first when, uh, when COVID was first popping off? Remember it was on door handles. Remember, it was on door handles. It was on your bags. Oh, my God. If you ordered, if you ordered DoorDash, you better uh, leave it in the sunlight on your front porch or you could touch it and get sick. Or you had to spray it down with Lysol. Remember, everyone was like, hey, it says coronavirus on the Lysol bottle. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty easy to make claims that your product kills viruses when nobody can prove it otherwise, isn't it? So anyway, yes, um, these these viruses, so called, they can they can float through the air, they can stick on surfaces, blah blah blah, where they can kill you, um, tens of minutes or hours later just by touching it. But uh, but you know what? We can't isolate them because they're just too delicate for that. So it's very odd, right? <laughs> we they can't uh, they can't purify a uh, a sample from from humans. They can't, uh, they can't purify a, uh, a viral sample from cells. They can't separate exomes and other similar material uh, or DNA even uh, from these viruses. So that's another thing in these viral samples. You know, that's the thing that we got from SARS-CoV-2, right, was that the Chinese uh, uh, science community, they, they didn't give us a little isolated vial of virus. Because those don't exist. But what they gave us was the genetic code for the virus. Which I don't know if I'll have time to get into on this episode. <laughs> but I do know how they came up with that genetic code sequence. Because of course I do. Because that's the kind of crazy shit that I pay attention to. But anyway, just know that they are not able to separate a, uh, a virus from other DNA in the sample. Well, that's pretty confusing then. How did they get to, <laughs> to that um, that, uh, that virus RNA um, isolation? I, I don't know because they can't separate it from DNA. So anyway, they can't isolate viruses, period. Can't be done. So how can we prove that they exist? Basically, we can't. Basically, we can't because all we have is the cytopathic effect, which I explained last time, which basically shows that it's a uh, it's a trick they're pulling. So anyway, uh, there that's isolation. There's a lot more to it. Trust me, you can go down the virus isolation rabbit hole, and I would encourage you to do it because once you start paying attention to this stuff, you're gonna read about viruses and the technical jargon, you know, in newspapers. On PubMed, wherever you get your science, and you're gonna start picking out these things and going, oh shit, Sean was right. They're making some weird claims here that I don't really think they can back up. So, anyway, you might be saying, you might be saying, but Sean, (laughs) I have seen the virus. I have seen it. There are pictures of them. Haven't you seen the pictures? Of the virus. You know, it looks like a ball with all the spiky bits pointing out of it. (laughs) You know, the one you only saw, you only saw that image a hundred thousand times over the last three years. And you know what? Again, uh, follow me over on Mines and I'll say follow me on Instagram too. I, who knows? I I don't post there as often, but Mines, I post all this stuff. And so um, you probably didn't hear about this, but. Uh, as I mentioned in uh, COVID, uh, the COVID scam episode. In the COVID scam episode, I mentioned all of those um, those roundtable events where all of the lizard people planned out this uh, this pandemic. One of those more prominent events, and uh, even included our friend Bill Gates, was called Event Two Hundred One. If you listen to that. Uh, COVID episode, then uh, you would have heard me talk about this. Anyway, at the event 201, uh, if you attended that event, they actually gave out a virus plushie toy. (laughs) It is so preposterous and ridiculous that these lizard people actually made like a little plushie doll virus and gave it out. Like, that's the way they think of this stuff. It's a joke. It's a toy. It's something for them to uh to wield and to I mean essentially make fun of us, right? They're they're planning out deadly virus scenarios and they're giving out friggin' toys. Come on. Anyway, follow follow me uh over on Minds and I will I'll definitely post some pictures of uh of that event 201 plushie toy, and by the way. I have looked high and low for one of those things and I can't find it. I'm willing to pay anything <laughs> for it. So if you know where I can get one, let me know because I can't find it on the auction sites or anything like that. But anyway, um, yeah. So, so anyway, you might be saying I've seen the image. Uh, I've seen the plush toy. I know what these things look like. Um, but you know what? Everything that you've seen is, uh, It's ridiculous. It's like a NASA image. (laughs) Because if you didn't know, all the NASA images of space are fake, too. Which, uh, that is a whole nother ball of wax to get into. But, um, you know what, I'll just... all right, <laughs> I'll save that part for later. But uh, yeah, NASA images, they're all artist renditions. Um, they're not actually using um, optical telescopes and cameras in space if they're using them at all. So essentially, what they're doing is they're getting back data that's like, you know, like, like the guy in the Matrix, and uh, some artist is making a representation of that. So all those pictures of planets. And space and stars and galaxies and nebulas and black holes. Although I don't think you could take a picture of a black hole. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Those are all uh, those are all fake. <laughs> those those are all artist renditions. And the same holds true for viruses. So you might be asking, well, I've seen the pictures. So what are those pictures? Well, they are images from uh, from an electron microscope or um, using electron microscopy. And as we have uh, stated last time and this time, the viruses are really, 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 really small, really small, right? And um, because of that, uh, we are told that you can't actually view them optically. You can't see them with visible light. So the light that you and I use for our eyeballs, well, the wavelength is actually larger than the virus itself. And so because of that, and a light wavelength in the visible spectrum to us is not going to pick it up because it's smaller than the light wavelength. Does that make sense? I hope so. <laughs> so um, what do electron microscopes do? Electron microscopes, shoot a beam of electrons. And electrons um, oscillate or, yeah, I guess it would be oscillate. Their, their wavelength is 0.01 nanometers. So it's much, much smaller than visible light. I think our uh, visible light uh, of what we can see, that would be down near the ultraviolet spectrum. So I'm guessing it's in the Uh, I should have looked this up if I'm going to claim it, but you know me. Uh, It's probably down somewhere near the 300 nanometer uh, area. So obviously that's much bigger than a virus. Viruses are claimed to be uh, anywhere from, shoot, uh, very small, like 10 nanometers to like 150 nanometers. So anyway, the Electron, 0.01 nanometers, really, 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 really small. So you can shoot this thing over something that is comparatively large, like a virus, even at 10 or 150 nanometers. But this thing is only 0.01. And so if you've heard the term scanning electron microscope, what it does is essentially think like a laser going over and scanning something. That is supposedly what it does to, well, that is what it does but uh, to viruses or what is presumed to be a virus. So imagine in the way that a laser scanner scans a 3D object. That is how um, electron microscopy supposedly works on viruses. Does that all make sense so far? <laughs> uh, again, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to follow. You know, when I was writing it down, I didn't think it sounded all that um, uh, complicated. Uh, but, um, I guess I was just visualizing it, not explaining it at that point. So anyway, if you, um, if I'm not explaining it well enough, there's a bunch of people online who probably explain it better than me and you can, can look that up. But anyway, that's essentially how this technology works. But what is the problem with these images? Why don't these images suffice to prove that what we're looking at is a virus, well, the first big problem, uh, with it is because one, we haven't isolated it. So how do we know that what we're looking at is even the, um, pathogenic entity that we have claimed that it is. So let's say we're going to take a picture of this thing and we're like, yeah, the virus is in there. And, uh, the guy taking the picture is like, all right, are you sure? Uh, There's not other shit in there, right? And you're like, yeah, well, there might be other stuff. (laughs) And the guy taking the picture is like, well, yeah, the thing is, though, um, I've got to know that because this is going to give me back some real shitty, grainy, uh, black and white um, image. And it tells me nothing about the sample. So I've got to know that what's in there is a virus. And they're like, well, close enough. (laughs) <laughs> so anyway that's that's uh, one of the first problems with it. Also, um, they just they really want it to be a virus. That's the thing that that I keep coming back to. So viruses themselves, uh, germ theory, it, I mean, it even predated uh, Louis Pasteur, but that's basically like back to what the 1700s. These pathogens, these tiny, microscopic particles were theorized and claimed to exist long before the electron microscope was invented because uh, the electron microscope was invented uh, somewhere around the thirties. Jeez. I'm sorry. I do that to you guys. Somewhere around the thirties, sometime in that era. But at that time, I mean, it was already a couple of hundred years of germ theory and virus, so they, were, they, they really wanted to find it. And so look at some of these um, electron microscope images of really anything, and you tell me, like, what they look like, you can't tell what's what. And so they're going to find what they're looking for, and they're looking for viruses. And so when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so that's basically what they're doing. They're like, "All right, we have this technology now. Let's prove ourselves right." And um, there's some other there's some other issues with um, with electron microscopy. Another one of those is that the electrons themselves, when you shoot this beam of electrons at the um, you know, subatomic particle. You're trying to look at well, that beam is interrupted by just air, just the molecules in air. So you have to perform these uh, images, these um, these uh, tests, these observations. You have to perform them in a vacuum because the again, the the, the electrons will get disrupted by by just the uh the air atmosphere and so because these uh these samples have to be in a vacuum you can't actually view anything that's living you can't uh say observe a virus actually infecting a cell because if you could do that you know that would basically uh that, that would go a long way for proving virus theory But they can't actually look at anything alive because of the nature of how these electron microscopes work. So they can't uh, sprinkle some virus on some cells and then watch them infect and take over the cells and kill it. Because anything they look at has to be dead anyway, or at least not living. Because, again, we're getting into that thing where, yes, viruses they claim are not alive or dead, blah, blah, blah. So anyway— Uh, So yeah, they've got to be used in a vacuum. So you can't look at anything living. There's no color. There's no color on these because you're not using visible light. You know, if you think about the rainbow, that's how we see. We see all that different spectrum of color. But if you're just shooting electrons, it's, you know, it's basically either on or off. It's like binary, essentially, or gradient in in some cases. And then also the uh, the samples themselves have have to be processed in a way to make them viewable so again they got to put them in this you know vacuum but they also have to be like um essentially pulverized into a you know as much of a pulp as possible because again you're, you're trying to view something so small you've, you've got to get like a the thinnest layer of it you know imaginable and then they so so they have to essentially you know, in a, some kind of laboratory equipment, they have to masticate it down to, to you know tiny bits, and then they have to put dyes on it because there are certain uh, things that will react with the electron beam and whatnot. Some of, some of that stuff gets a little bit over my head, but one thing that's important to note is that as they process these samples, air bubbles can uh, can can get into them these tiny air bubbles can be present in the samples. And the funny thing about viruses, when you see them, they're always like perfectly round. They're always these round spheres. So they, so they assume, okay, all these viruses are just round bubbles with little spikes pointing out of them. And you know, the spike protein, and they got these little barbs shooting out that they say, grab onto the cells or whatever, but why are they all round? Uh, so if every image of them is round, when you're viewing them in 2D, the only possible shape that can be is a sphere. Follow me here. So if you look at a basketball, if you turn the basketball in any direction, it's, it's round. In two dimension, it's always round in any direction. Now, if you take a cube or a, a horse, whatever, <laughs> any shape, and you, and you turn it, you're always gonna get a different shape in two dimensions. You know, you'll see the profile of the horse, or you'll see the, the ass of the horse, whatever, but um, that, that shape, that silhouette is always gonna change. The only uh, object that's never going to change when you view it from any direction in two dimension, when you view its silhouette, is a sphere, because it's always gonna be round from every single direction. So what is always round, air bubbles. It seems like the most likely thing that's being viewed is air bubbles in these samples because they're all over the place. And if there is something kind of detritus or something uh, sticking to the air bubbles, it looks like you've got a spiky sphere, which is what all these viruses look like under scanning electron microscopes or just, uh, regular electron microscope. So anyway, um, <laughs> uh, all right. So, so that's basically electron microscopy. I'm trying to figure out whether I have enough time to go into the, uh, the, 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 the DNA, RNA, uh, um, uh, code of viruses. I, I don't think we do, but anyway, let's, Let's uh, let's wrap up with uh, with a scanning electron microscopy. Again, all these things are round, so they're they're most likely bubbles. Th- these images they don't tell us anything about viruses because uh, they're they're not viewing them actively. They're not seeing them do anything. They're not um, uh, showing them uh, attacking anything. Uh, essentially, all they're doing is finding things in the sample that confirm what they're looking for confirm their bias, their bias and they tell us that they've taken a picture of a uh, of a virus uh <laughs> and in nasa's case of a galaxy or a nebula or a star or something <laughs> anyway um so it's uh you know, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about th- this. Might be weird. I don't know if other people actually have this experiment, uh, this experience. But if you close your eyes really tight and then you like press on your eyes really hard, it gives you all these like weird faint shapes. I don't know. Is that just my weird brain doing something, or do your do your uh, does your brain do this when you when you push? <laughs> I'm doing it right now, but you can't see me. Uh, when you push on your closed eyelids, when your eyes are tightly closed, really tight, and you push on them, do you see weird shapes? I do. Anyway, that's what uh, that's what the images of uh, of scanning electron microscopes look like. So anyway, I'll post some of those so you can look at them. Um, you can tell me if I'm crazy if that experience doesn't happen to you. So anyway, let's uh, let's bring this thing in for a landing. I think there were some some uh, some pretty good other inconsistencies there. Those are some of my other favorites. But what does it all mean? What does it all mean if these viruses aren't uh, real or they're they're not doing what they tell us that they do? Um, what does it mean if, uh, you know, viruses and virus protocols like drugs and um, and vaccines, Uh, what are they all created based upon? Uh, Just some unproven theory? I mean, think about the way viruses affect our lives, or at least the way we believe they affect our lives. I mean, just COVID, obviously, it it comes up every day now. And then, you know, think about measles and swine flu and stuff. Things like cervical cancer, cervical cancer is said to be caused by a virus. And then we have all the avian flus and all the other uh, flu things that that supposedly kill off livestock and affect our, our food situation. You know, SARS, hepatitis, AIDS, polio, all these things are said to be these viruses, which at the very, very least... The scientific community has not proven a hundred percent that they exist and that they do what they are claimed to do. And I think I've explained, you know, pretty accurately through the uh, through the cytopathic effect, through uh, the lack of isolation, and through you know, electron microscopy and some of the failed experience I've mentioned that they definitely are not fulfilling their obligation to prove that things that these things exist. And they're definitely not proving that, uh, you know, Koch's postulates have been fulfilled, which if you look at Koch's postulates, which we have done a bunch here, they're reasonable approaches to prove that something is pathogenic. It's the most reasonable approach you can take, and they haven't done that. So it's pretty creepy when you think about how these things affect our life and how they may not be what they're claimed to be. And, you know, what I think is going on is these viruses are really good for industry. They're really good for the medical community because they love selling us drugs and they love taking your health out of your hands and putting it in the hands of your doctor, that's getting paid a bunch of money with insurance. But um, you know what they're doing is they they have this endless supply of symptoms, and the medical sorcerers are just playing virus roulette. and And we can see that in so many different scenarios, like AIDS. AIDS is the best one, I promise. Uh, it's not the best one, like best disease. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> because AIDS is something, but it's not because of the HIV virus. But anyway, uh, my favorite example is what I should say is, is AIDS because AIDS was just something before HIV, before, you know, the AIDS panic was just something called uh, Kaposi sarcoma which is essentially like a skin cancer type of thing and uh, kind of pops up when, you're, when your immune system is uh, failing, and uh, which is what AIDS is said to be doing. And um, you know what? It was funny. Now, if you're, say, not at risk for AIDS, if you're not in one of the risk groups, your AIDS is probably um, diagnosed as... Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, because again, it's all the same symptoms, but just with a different diagnosis. And by the way, speaking of, of AIDS diagnosis, did you know that you can be AIDS positive in some country, cross the border and take a test and be AIDS negative, or I should say HIV negative in that country, because these tests are a joke. And uh, they're relying on crap technology. And so that just goes to show you that none of this stuff really lines up because they have two different standards for testing HIV in different countries. So in one country, you're HIV positive. In the next country, uh, just by crossing a border, uh, you are not. It's not the only one. I mean, think about the we give uh, we give newborn babies hepatitis vaccines. That is fully crazy. Because it's only hookers and IV drug users. Probably a big, big portion of those overlap too, I would imagine. But, um, you know, what is it that hookers and IV drug users have in common? Well, um, I don't know. Their immune system has been completely wrecked. Doesn't sound like something we should give babies. And you know what? Here's the thing. You can't falsify that the hepatitis vaccine wasn't working for the baby because uh, the baby's not going to get hepatitis, the virus. We uh, we vaccinate chicken uh, <laughs> chickens kids against chicken pox. Uh, so kids don't get chicken pox anymore, right? Well, kind of. They get a lot of the same symptoms. They just call it different stuff now. Uh, we got, uh, what's this one? Hand, foot, and mouth. Have you heard of hand, foot, and mouth? Oh, yeah, it's all the rage these days. It's definitely not a different form of chicken pox, though. So, you know, anyway, don't uh, don't look at that. And then COVID, you know, COVID had the, the asymptomatic spread, which we already discussed how ridiculous that is. Um, you know, it only works because of these faulty tests and, you um, Y- you know, this stories with their inconsistencies with these masks that obviously don't work. If we take their own numbers, their own figures and estimates for how big these viruses are and the poor size of the virus, bam, right then and there, the, the, the masks don't do anything, but we're supposed to believe it. We're supposed to believe if we, you know, touch a door handle or if we don't hug grandma through a clear shower curtain uh, that she's going to die from these, uh, these aliens she's going to breathe into her lungs. So you know what? Grandma and Grandpa, we should just wave goodbye to them as they die in the hospital. Um, you know, on our iPad. Because after all, you know, we we could uh, breathe in something. They're already dying, by the way. Uh, but I guess we could breathe something onto the hospital staff that has shown themselves to be complete and utter cowards in the face of all of this. So anyway, if I'm a little angry about that, yes, there actually were people who died in hospitals without their family around because of all this fake nonsense of these fake viruses. Anyway, and then you know what? Another thing I I, I just have to mention is uh, the overlap with COVID and AIDS, these two gangbuster viruses that created so much money for the medical industry. And you know, what's funny about the overlap, you know, during the AIDS crisis, I've mentioned before on the podcast that, that the HIV drug or the AIDS drug, whatever it is uh, called AZT was a failed cancer drug. It was so deadly that they had to shelf it and there was no use for it. So what did they do? They gave it to all the HIV positive people and they killed them. And then what's the next one? We had covid Well, now we've got remdesivir, another drug that was so deadly, they couldn't market it for anything. So what'd they do? Well, they gave it to people who tested positive for COVID, put them on a ventilator, gave them the remdesivir, bam, now they're dead. Isn't it funny how that happens? Isn't it funny how they roll out another fake virus and they start dishing out all the deadly toxic poisons that they can't sell to anyone else? It's all a scam. It's all a scam. Because here's the thing. Maybe viruses do do what they say. They still shouldn't be giving us all the toxic medication that doesn't uh, have any effect on it anyway. So anyway, it is all a scam. And um, I hope some of my evidence was compelling enough to convince you to look into this further. Because it is important. It is important to realize that this thing so many people are so scared of just doesn't work the way that we're told it does. So we need to pull back a little bit. Oh, we all need to take a deep breath like I do because I get kind of heated about this topic, especially <clears throat> especially when I think about uh, people who died alone in hospitals needlessly. Anyway, we need to slow down, we need to reevaluate, and we need to consider why it is the way it is. We need to look at who's profiting from it. Why would they continue this narrative dishonestly? I called out a couple of people on the last show, uh, people who are like health freedom people who fail to talk about this topic, and they fail to talk about it because they don't want to be viewed as a whack job or a loon. They don't want to lose their credibility, and they don't want to lose those advertising dollars, so they won't touch this topic because it's too fringe. But hey, I'm just a guy in my basement, and I'm trying to bring the topic to a wider audience so that hopefully we can get it in the mainstream and force them to answer these unanswered questions. Because medicine is broken, and it's definitely broken where infectious diseases are concerned. There are answers out there that we deserve. And we should stop being scared of all of these viruses if they can't be proven to do what they're said that they do. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Um, you know what? I, uh, you yeah, know, I, I have a song this week that is not, it's not, uh, it has nothing to do with this topic. And you know what? It's a Jimmy Buffett song. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, Jimmy Buffett died uh, a couple of weeks ago and, um, and I miss him. <laughs> I, I do. Um, uh, you know, he wouldn't be a fan of my show. I know that <laughs> he was—he was not into any of this kind of stuff. He would not be a fan of my show, and that's—that's that's because you know, in the Bible, it says that it is—it is more difficult for a uh, for a rich man to get to heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And if you uh, sort of believe in the Bible in a in a metaphoric um, you know or metaphysical sense then um, then I think heaven is enlightenment. I think that when they're saying it is harder for a rich man to get to heaven, I think what the Bible is saying there is it's harder for a rich person to achieve that enlightenment. And let me tell you, Jimmy Buffett was rich. <laughs> he was he was really rich and he was rich for a long long time And so I think maybe, because of that he was lacking a, a little bit of of enlightenment and by the way let me just tangent this and say uh, you know this uh, this this uh, rich men seeking enlightenment thing uh, this is why politics cannot be reformed by the way <laughs> this is why because politics is all about money and um, uh, and and so that means that they they cannot they cannot be enlightened I don't know if you're following the um, Kevin McCarthy saga that's playing out, but um, you know why Kevin McCarthy was the speaker of the house. It wasn't because he was such a brilliant orator and it wasn't because he could bring people together and, uh, you know, uh, seek resolution between um, unlike Uh, parties and stuff. No, that wasn't why. The reason why Kevin McCarthy was the speaker is one, because he was a uh, vain and vapid man whose ego was everything, but also because he could raise the most money. Really, that's all it was. The guy could raise, I think, on the order of 700 million dollars or something, some ridiculous amount of money. But anyway, just know (laughs) that uh, 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 politicians are not going to find the enlightenment that I speak about either way. But any, but anyway, I I, I say all of this because I want to give Jimmy Buffett a pass. <laughs> I know he wouldn't listen to my show. Um, I know he was a um, he was having his uh, his band and his crewmates uh, get vaccinated and um, and and go through all that rigmarole. But uh, but you know what, I give him a pass because he enlightened me so much um, over the years, and, and I was a real fan of his, like a real fan. I've been to more of his concerts than, uh, than I can count. I, I've seen him in um, Hawaii and uh, um, basically every venue in, in California and, and Vegas a bunch of times, and very recently... My wife and I went to go see him in in Gulf Shores, Alabama, which was an absolutely amazing concert. It was about uh, one year ago. Yeah, exactly about one year ago. And um, what a wonderful concert. That's actually where Jimmy Buffett was born and raised. So it was a really special place to see him. And um, I remember... Uh, saying to my wife, like, you know what, this is really special because he's not going to be around forever. I'm so glad we get to go see him again. And um, and then I, I remarked at the concert, I was like, dude, this guy is so healthy looking. Never mind, he's going to be around forever, and that's just not the case. But uh, but I was a real, I mean, I'm a real fan. I, I went and saw his absolutely awful Broadway show, and. Uh, <laughs> That didn't last very long. I read a bunch of his books. And um, if you should ever have the great pleasure of riding in my truck, you will see that uh, it's always on the uh, Margaritaville Sirius XM station. And so, you know what? Even though Jimmy Buffett has absolutely nothing to do with this episode and because I'm sure he would agree with almost nothing that I say on this podcast, I don't care. I wanna play a song <laughs> by Jimmy Buffett because I miss him and because his music has absolutely uh, made such a big difference in my life. I just love it. And um, and anyway, he will be missed. And this is my favorite Jimmy Buffett song. It always has been. And uh, from the first time I heard it, there's just something about it. And um, I hope you enjoy it too. Here is one particular harbor By Jimmy Buffett, we'll see you next time. I used to rule my world from a phone Ships out on the sea But now times are up and I got too much stuff Can't explain of me But there's this one particular harbor Think about the good times down in the Caribbean sunshine. In my younger days, I was so bad, Laban- That one